Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Christine Coulson is the author of One Woman Show, a novel. Christine spent 25 years writing for the Metropolitan Museum of Art and left as senior writer in 2019. Her debut novel about the museum, Metropolitan Stories, was a national bestseller and is now followed by One Woman Show. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your novel, One Woman Show. Thank you. You're welcome. This was so creative. This is the most original form of a novel I've read and I mean, I can't even remember when. So awesome. Tell listeners how you came up with the structure for the story and all the rest and your whole background and how it relates. And it's just pretty genius, I have to say. Well, we'll start at the beginning, which is that I, I worked for the Metropolitan Museum of Art for 25 years. And my last project there was to write the museum wall labels for the new British galleries that opened in 2020. And it was during that time that I had the idea to apply that very strict form to write labels about people and treat them like intricate works of art. And I didn't know how I was going to do that or what it would become, but I liked that concept of of using the form and it's a very strict one as i said it's 
Um, you only get 75 words per work of art. Every word has to work. And, you know, that kind of constraint can yield tremendous creativity. I love limitations. And labels are also the kind of thing where they have to exist in their own sort of place and not necessarily connect to another label because you don't know the order that visitors in the museum are going to read them in. So that each one has to work and you have to stick the landing each time. And so I applied that idea to kind of distilling the moments in a woman's life as they unfold over the course of a century and creating this kind of retrospective exhibition of a woman who, like works of art, is evaluated, critiqued, prized, and collected from her earliest childhood throughout her life. So neat. So for people who aren't as familiar with museum life in general, so does every individual piece of art, everything has to have a description underneath with the exact same formula? And, and is that across yeah. all museums or is it just the Met or how does that work? And who learns, who writes those? Yeah, most museums do it. Some are hardcore and only include, you know, those first three lines in the description are what we call in museums, the tombstone information. So like the artist and the dates and the medium, where it came from. So some museums are very limited and they only include that. At the Met, you'll see labels from across the last, you know, 50 years at least. I mean, there are still some labels from the 1940s in those galleries. And so the limitations change. There are some very long labels in certain collections. But the new restrictions that I was writing under, 75 words. I got 200 words per century. So the galleries covered four centuries. I got 200 words per century and 75 per object. It's very unusual for an outside person to come in and write labels that's not a curator. So mm -hmm. I was working with a group of seven curators on this huge project. And the curator who was in charge of it really wanted to unify the voice of the galleries themselves so that visitors would feel a sense of continuity as they were walking through the galleries. So I was the galleries. And so I was a former speechwriter. And so the, the galleries were my client. And so I was creating a kind of consistency in how the objects were approached and how we use that language. And so I was collaborating with people who knew everything about these objects and asking them to pick just one story, mm. 75 words to share with the public. And I think in, in crafting the novel, it was similar to that. I want the readers to eventually wonder what's being left out. Mm. Um, that in the end, you've got 75 words, you've, you've, you've spanned the sprawling life and it's action packed. I mean, a lot oh, happens. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I want there to be a little bit by the end, a little question about the reliability of this narrator, this curator in constructing this life, what we know, what we don't know. I want the reader to be very active in kind of connecting with those texts. It's almost the opposite of in a museum where you see a work of art and then there's a little description that kind of explains it. Here, you're getting the label, but the page opposite is blank. And mm -hmm. so I want the reader to conjure what I'm describing, to kind of make their own work of art in a way. And I love that kind of active reading, that sort of participatory experience in a book. So cool. So when you were doing this, 
as you said, so many things happen in this woman's life. And you also give us points of view from her friends, and we kind of track a couple of the friends, which is also really fun. Did you start and say, okay, here are the things I want to happen to this woman over time. This is what happens. You know, this, you know, this, oh, well, this time period is going to coincide with this war, and I'm going to make this happen. Or, like, how did you do that? And did you plot it on some sort of timeline? Like, it felt very... Yeah, well... I have to say, I did not set out to write a book about this woman at all. So this is an interesting um, instance in where, you know, the, the character kind of took over. Mm-hmm. I, st- I wrote a label about this woman, I call her Kitty, as an experiment. It was the first experiment in writing a label about a person. And I just picked this woman standing in the Mets galleries, a kind of typical Park Avenue lady. And I wrote a label about her. And I liked it. That label's still in the book. It's about three quarters of the way in. And I thought, huh, I'm going to try and write 20 labels about that woman. And I just, it was a way of kind of stretching the form and seeing if it was possible, testing its capacity. And so as I was doing that, I was coming up with things that could happen to her. Probably the last label in the book is probably the third one I wrote. So I was always writing to that ending. Mm-hmm. kind of a speech writery thing to do but i i had a destination in a way and then the story itself kind of spread more like an ink blot than than a linear timeline but i would think of things like at the met in uh, during world war 2 all of the important objects went into storage in a house in pennsylvania and I thought, oh, maybe Kitty goes into storage. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was kind of working a little bit with things, ideas I would have, and then I'd have to fill it in so that the, the reader is going to buy that. The reader is going to be ready for what I want to happen to her. So some of it was a very kind of traditional novel writing, character development, plot, emotional engagement, all those kind of standard traditional modes of storytelling, but within this restricted form. And I write, when I write a label, I tape it to the wall. So the whole book is actually on a wall in my writing studio. And so I was just kind of populating that wall with moments distilled in this form and kind of, she was sort of revealing the story to me in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was very complicit. It's a, it's an interesting thing that sounds hokey, but it was really happening in real time that because you know kitty's complicated she's not she's not always likable Mm -hmm. she's kind of she understands her own limitations and restrictions and resists them at times but not you know kitty never wanted to be a ceo but she certainly understood how she was being evaluated and compared to her friends that dynamic with her friends is an interesting one to explore so i loved sort of being introduced to these characteristics of her personality as we went. Isn't it funny? Like, this sounds ridiculous. But when you look at the cover of the book, you don't know necessarily that it is the structure and how unique it is. Do you know what I mean? I would love your cover, by the way. Love it. And like your website design, like the whole package is just so sleek and cool. And I don't know, just it's evocative and amazing. But you know, I don't know. I was very deliberate in a lot of that, though. Like the cover is meant to evoke like a, a museum banner on mm-hmm. the museum's facade. Mm-hmm. And the font in the that we use is the font that the Met uses for its labels. Um, you'll note that there's no page numbers because label, labels don't have page numbers. 
And I'm and you see these three porcelain figures on the cover, uh, mainly because I wanted to use the language of porcelain to describe Kitty. I think it's a very human kind of medium. You know, it's hard but fragile, made of fire. It has, in Kitty's case, it has limited utility, like like her. It's easily moved and like grouped with other things, mm-hmm. um, and it's very hard to hide its damage. You know, in museums, we talk about when something has a flaw, we say it has condition issues. Um, (laughs) And I feel like that's such a human term. Like, what are we if not filled with condition issues? Mm -hmm. And so that idea of our own flaws and their visibility or their invisibility and how those appear and how they get critiqued and what we hide versus what we reveal, I thought was really interesting to explore in this language. And I love how the art language, whether you know all the terminology or not, I think the way that it's used, you figure it out. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Yeah. Even the different color pages, right? Like, Yes. Yeah, so those are, so as I'm writing label after label about Kitty, I needed there to be a signal when it was not Kitty. Mm-hmm. And it was like what we would call in a museum, comparative material. So that's her parents and her friends. And kind of creating some sense of a, a shift in in tone there. I also really wanted it to be funny mm-hmm. because I think that sort of humor and struggle, the darker moments in life, those two things combine are what make it really feel authentic to the way that we experience life. You know, if you're talking about the entire expanse of a life, there's joy and there's darkness. And I think it's important to keep those things pushing against one another. Wow. Can I just read one of these so people know what I'm even talking about? Sure. So here's an example. This was hilarious because I love William Pohl. That's why I I turned this one down. But (laughs) (laughs) so this is one of the gray pages. Tuna salad. This is all caps. Tuna salad on white toast with carrot sticks. And then the next line is italicized lunch, 1950. And then not italics, collection of William Pohl's specialty foods and catering, 1051 Lexington Avenue, New York City. And then below it, you say, a rectilinear composition of four diminutive sandwich triangles punctuates a circular porcelain plate in an abstract portrait of caloric constraint. Three orange stripes, peeled carrots of limited dimension, add to the Mondrian rigor, drawing the eye without tempting the palate. Kitty eats this still life alone and with the quiet resolve of a squirrel unable to temper the determined lust of its consumption. A cigarette follows. <laughs> you know, you know that lunch, but you also know that woman. Yep. You know that, that I think that that's, it was fun to think about things like that. Uh, and some of that was also challenging myself to say like, you know, can I write a label about a lunch? Like that's stretching the form as much as I could. You know, I write about, I also write about a miscarriage and I, yes. you know, wanted to write about, you know, I'm, I'm going to give something away, but more as a, a tease, you know, Kitty has sex with Picasso. And so <laughs> writing that label was like, what if she does have sex with Picasso? How do I write that? And so that kind of challenge, I think really comes across in the writing because I really enjoyed it. How many labels are there? Oh, in the end, I think it's the whole thing is 206 pages. Those aren't all labels, but I don't really know how many actual labels are. You know, there's those interruptions that happen too. Yes. Um, so there was a point at which the labels, I had written probably about 50 of them. And it, the, the architecture of it was all very stable, but maybe getting a little bit rigid. And so I thought, you know, I, it's time to kind of blow it up. 
and disrupted a little bit. And so I thought about when you're standing in a museum and there are other people in the gallery and you're reading the label, but they're talking behind you um, and they have their own opinions about what you're looking at. And so they're saying, and you can kind of hear them that there's this, we call those pages, the chatter. And often that chatter, those bits of dialogue that interrupt the labels, they first, they allowed Kitty to have a voice, but often they undermine what the authority of those labels, they, they go against what you're reading. And so again, there's that idea of where is the truth in this and, and whose story is being told and by whom and where, how does it get a little bit slippery? Um, and so again, I like that kind of active, I like label as catalyst rather than label as explanation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I haven't read Metropolitan Stories. Yeah. Tell me about that. And that was your first novel. So now, of course, I have to go back and read that. Tell me about that. That was my first novel. And I was still at the Met at that time. And they gave me a year-long sabbatical to write that book, which had been like cooking inside of me for 23 years, and then just came like pouring out of me. I had exactly a year. It took exactly a year to write. And it is really a love letter to that place. And it really focuses on my first 10 years there. I started there in 1994. I'm kind of wide-eyed, and there are incredible sort of larger than life characters then. And it's a completely analog world. So a lot of a lot of our time there was spent kind of navigating that building 
you know, it's four blocks long and two blocks deep. And a lot of your cred came from your ability to like physically move around there. And because of that, you were kind of put in rooms with very important people and you got to be sort of a fly on the wall to a lot of things. And that just takes on this surreal nature. And there was a kind of very familial aspect to that institution and a kind of family lore, stories we repeated over and over again. So I use a lot of that, but I also really wanted to write from the point of view of the works of art themselves. So there are whole chapters devoted to that. There's a, the third chapter in the book is from the point of view of a chair in the 18th century French period rooms. And it's kind of lament about how it will never be sat in again. You know, that it's arrived in this very lavish sort of retirement home, but <laughs> longs for like human contact. And I think that too came from the great privilege of being able to live in that building for 25 years. You start to see things differently when you have that kind of access and you just really relax around those works of art in a way that, you know, they feel like they're, again, revealing themselves to you. And I wanted to put that down on paper, that that sensibility, if only to to model to visitors how they too can, you know, stop worrying about what they don't know and just really enjoy looking and thinking about the path that these objects have traveled. I mean, we really isolate them in a museum when we put spotlights on them and you feel like this is where they've always been. But, you know, that chair spent decades in storage and, you know, started, you know, in some furniture makers in Paris. And I love the idea of moving it to the upholsterer. And then that whole process, you know, I think it's nice to remind people of the lives that objects have lived. It's amazing. So what's your next project going to be? Well, I'm not sure yet, but I have a, I have, I, I like that first book, you know, that book was in my head. I never wrote anything down, never took notes, kept a journal, nothing, and just let it cook. And then same thing for this book. I had an idea. I had this idea when I was working on the British Gallery. So that was spring of 2019 and didn't start writing for another two years. Um, I let that kind of, I like to have an idea and go sort of visit it from time mm -hmm. to time and let it cook. I think withholding it actually is a very active thing to distinctly not write it down, to let it stew a little bit. And so now I have similarly like another bad idea <laughs> that's impossible to do that I visit from time to time. And so I feel it cooking. It's nice. I love that. There's something very special about that time to just let it gestate and, and have it there. So that's there, but I find it difficult. I'm very disciplined as a writer. So when I start writing, I'm almost superstitious about how I write. Um, I eat like the same breakfast at the same place in the same chair every single day. I write from 10 to 3, never get out of my seat, no breaks. I'm really rigorous about it and it works. So when I get into that mode, it's I sacrifice everything else for it. And both books, because of that, I think took exactly a year to write. Hmm. Mainly wow. for because of that time before of letting it do its thing. So neat. Have you ever done, and I, I should have looked, I bet you have Patrick, what's his name, who wrote the other book about working at, as a guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. All the beauty. Yeah. All the beauty that lies within or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful story of, of how the museum and the galleries can really provide a sort of solace for people. And I, I, I really wanted to write about that too in 
Metropolitan Stories is a chapter in there that tries to capture that as well. It's a guy who changes the light bulbs. Uh, I wrote about, they're called Lampers. And I wrote about the Lampers because I think they're really sort of rock stars at the museum. So I created a Lamper who's afraid of the dark. (laughs) And... (laughs) And I love the idea of the museum as a place. I mean, it's how it works for me as a place to go and feel some kind of solace, to feel like it's, you know, it's a very, for me, it's a very spiritual place. It's a place where you can experience great beauty, but also contemplate survival. And I feel like the presence of that in a world like what we're living through now is really important as a touchstone. I also think the museum can be fun and funny and you know, and I think people should relax there as much as possible. So I feel like the more people write about it, the more we break down some of that intimidation that exists when you walk through the door. So what is the rest of your life like when you're not writing? I read your essay about your son and his field trip. So I know there's that aspect (laughs) that there's the motherhood aspect of your life as well. But like, what do you do when you're not intensely writing? Well, it's funny because I am a collector. So I think I do collect art and I have a real relationship with objects. I think the most soothing thing I can possibly imagine is like moving objects around and making conversations with them. It's like my version of meditation. I'm an incredibly visual person. I think that's why I do write on the wall is because I was able to kind of see the book in a way. And the gray pages started as, as that kind of visual cue to me so I could actually see the cadence of the pages as they unfolded and sort of the rhythm of the book as each label got either interrupted with those bits of dialogue or a new outside person would come in. I wanted to see that, but I had to see it visually. I'm an intensely visual person. And so I think even when I write, I write visually rather than having like a pile of paper on the desk, which that I find that incredibly overwhelming. And like, I think it's an issue of control or the ability to kind of wrestle with the whole book rather than feel like I'm just, you know, there's a part of writing that's about like, you write a sentence, it becomes a paragraph, it becomes a page, it becomes a chapter. And sometimes it's great to break those things down and feel that. But I also feel like there's a point in every book where it starts to get unwieldy. And you get a little bit like, whoa, what is this thing? And you're trying to kind of hold it all. And I think visualizing that is the easiest way to manage it and feel like you can kind of get in there and wrestle with it. I love that. Oh my gosh. Any advice for aspiring authors? Oh, I think the best thing you can do is be disciplined about your writing. I know plenty of writers who, you know, write on post-it notes on the subway and I'm incredibly impressed by that. But I think if you really want to dig in and get what's in your head onto the page, I think there's nothing more important than rigor. I think creativity is like waiting for a bus. And the cre- it's, it's going to come. And you can either be at the bus stop and be there and get on that, get on board. Or if you get distracted and you're not there, the bus passes you by. And so I really believe that just allowing yourself the discipline to be there. And some days are great and some days are totally not productive, but I think the rigor of it is what yields what you need, even though it doesn't seem so day after day after day. Think in the aggregate, there's nothing better than discipline. Um, I love that bus analogy. That's fabulous. 
Don't miss the bus. I know. Don't miss the bus because it does show up. I mean, you know, we live in a city with buses that are not particularly reliable and creativity is not always reliable either, but, but it does come. And I think there's a moment that you just, you got to be there and you got to be willing to like, then take that and really wring it dry. Amazing. Christine, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on Mom's Center Time to read books. I hope to meet you in person very soon. I'm going to have to invite I you know. something. We'll do something Jimmy. together. <laughs> so thank you. And bravo. Really creative and inspirational. Very cool. Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Really did. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.